Thank you, Brother Dugas. Praise the Lord, everyone. It's good to have the opportunity to speak to you tonight. We appreciate that opportunity. And we're going to be dealing with the subject of holiness for the next three Wednesday nights, the Lord willing. And I want us to perhaps lay aside some of our preconceived ideas and just come to the Word of God. And I don't want to teach uh, just the doctrine of a church or denomination or my own opinions. I want to try to teach the Word of God. And perhaps I will touch on some things that you may not agree with or you may not understand. Uh, and I'm not saying that you should accept what I say. What I'm asking you is this. If there's anything that I would say that you would question in your mind, would you read the Word of God? Read some of the references that I give to you. Study it for yourself. If there's a question in your mind, pray about it. Study. Ask the Lord to show you. And if what I have to say is not Scripture, then it really has no authority. But if what I have to say is backed up by the Word of God and by the voice of the Holy Spirit and the instruction of your pastor, then it becomes more than just the words of a man. It becomes something that it is our responsibility as a Christian to heed. And so that's the basis that we want to approach this series of studies, on the basis of the Word of God. And each night, I will try to talk some about the principles of holiness, and then we will talk some about the application. Rather than just talk about certain specific topics, I think it would be good for us to look at some of the general principles of God's Word. And so we'll try to have a little bit of both each time. This first session is going to be a foundational one, and so probably most of it will be spent dealing with the definition of holiness and with the principles of holiness. But before it's over with, we will get right down to where we live. You won't be in the dark as to what I believe and teach and advocate, but we will get down to the basic facts of where we live. Amen. And I don't claim to be an expert on holiness. I don't claim to have arrived, but I am trying. And I am trying to implement these things in my lives, the, my life, the principles that I see in the Word of God. I want to orient my life after them. And to the extent that I fail, uh, I repent. And I ask God to help me. And the Lord has helped me, but I've still got a long way to go. And perhaps that's what all of us could acknowledge tonight. But just because we haven't arrived doesn't mean we shouldn't try. In fact, that's all the more reason that we need to earnestly contend and try to abide by the principles of God's Word. Would you stand with me tonight for a moment as we go to our foundation text that we are going to be reading, that we're going to be following throughout this series, and that's found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. And I would recommend that you have notebook paper and pen or pencil if you have that available. We'll be talking about a lot of things that I won't be able to go into great detail. I'll be reading a lot of Scripture, but I may just refer to some Scripture. And it may be convenient for you to, to write some of this down. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And so we're going to be speaking the next three nights on Scriptural holiness, that is, holiness the way the Bible teaches the next three Wednesday nights, including this one. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. 
Let's take some time to ask the Lord to bless our endeavors, to bless His Word, help us to understand His Word. Let's, let's take some time to, to pray right now. Oh, Lord, we thank you once again for the opportunity to be in your house to study your word. And, Lord, I'm asking for the miracle of the preached word of God. Let this not be a simple discourse or academic study, but somehow we ask for the divine unction of the Holy Spirit that you would move in our hearts and show us in your word the principles of Christian living. Help us to be encouraged to live a holy life, to understand what you would have us do. Be with us, we pray, this night. Bless your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. You know, there are a lot of people in our day that talk about being born again. That's become popular in recent years, hasn't it? You read about sports figures that are born again, movie stars born again, politicians born again everybody's born again but seemingly there's no difference in their lifestyle they're born again but there is no evidence of new life but I think the term born again is so popular because people have become aware of the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 3 except you're born again you cannot see the kingdom of God and so naturally everybody wants to be born again but the same scripture that says you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Also says, follow peace and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. If it is essential to be born again, it is also essential to live the life of holiness. The new birth is not the end of the salvation experience. The new birth is the beginning of new life in Christ. In one sense, we were saved, but in one sense, we are yet being saved. And in one sense, we shall be saved, the Bible says. And so if we are going to inherit eternal life with the Lord, not only is it necessary to be born again initially, but it is also necessary to continue in the faith, to follow after holiness. It's not just something that automatic, as the eternal security people say, but we must follow after peace. We must follow after holiness if we expect to see the Lord. And so the doctrine of holiness is not just an extra. It's not just for the super spiritual. It's not just for people that want to uh, be a little different than everybody else. But holiness is a command. Holiness is nece uh, a necessity. Holiness is an important part of our Christian life. If we want to see the Lord, we must live a holy life. And someone has pointed out that this may also have another application, and that is, if other people are going to see the Lord, they're not going to see Him as a visible manifestation walking on this earth. They're going to see Him through us. And without holiness in our lives, they're not going to see the Lord either. If we act just like them, if we look just like them, if we offer no alternative than what they already have in the world, then they'll never see the Lord either. So holiness is not an option. It is a command. It is part of our Christian experience. It is, really. To me, holiness is Christian living. Now, when we use the word holiness, some people think standard. Some people think uh, women not cutting their hair or dress. Or, and these are part of me. That is a humanist, a secular philosophy. But the Christian philosophy is what is the will of God? I don't live for myself. I live to please God. 
And people say, well, the world around us accepts all these uh, things that, that you say are wrong. But the point is not, does the world accept it? Not, is this acceptable fashion in the world? Not, is this expected in the world? Not, does this please the worldly person? But what does God think about this practice? Does it please Him? Is He satisfied with this? Is this what He wants? You're not your own. You don't have the right to live in yourself. God created us, so He has owner's rights. Not only that, He bought us out of sin. We were nothing till He found us. He made us what we are. We owe our Lord everything. So the first reason for holiness, even if we did not think it was so important, doesn't matter what we think, it's what God thinks. Second reason for holiness is for others' sake. And I alluded to that a moment ago. If we are going to reach our world, if we're going to save the lost, if we're going to have genuine apostolic revival, it's going to have to be associated with holiness. You see, there are many churches and denominations in this world. We can't compete with them on their level. They're bigger, richer, more powerful, better churches, uh, more political power, and so on and so on than we could ever hope to have. If we just say, come to the first XYZ church, and our church is the same as all the others, and we offer the same thing that everybody else has, we'll never, uh, we'll never be able to win. We'll never be able to compete. But the only way we're going to win people to our church and really to Christ is if they can see a difference in us. If they can say, hey, there's something different about that person. Their attitude is different. Their spirit is different. Their speech is different. Their actions are different. I want to know more about them. They seem to have genuine peace of mind. Uh, when people lash out against them, they react differently than most people. They have a spirit of meekness. They do not retaliate. They do not let bitterness rule their lives. They do not let jealousy. They do not let the spirit of immorality and immodesty pervade them. Then they can notice there's something different about us. And so for the sake of others, we must live holy. As Matthew 5 says, Jesus said the church is like a light. And people will see our good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. We're the only Bible that many people read. Holiness is for others' sake. And then the third thing, holiness is for our own sake. Both now and for eternity. I want you to realize this. Sometimes we think of holiness as restrictive and the only thing it's restrictive to is the carnal man. In the same way that um, you may say the banks of a river restrict it. Or the tracks of a railroad uh, restrict the, the train. But it's restriction in a good and purposeful way. If the train's never going to get anywhere, it's got to have tracks. If the river is going to be a river, it's got to have banks that will channel and confine its force into the right direction. It's like a fence around a garden. Yes, that fence is restrictive, but what does that fence restrict? It, does it restrict the freedom of the garden? No, it preserves the freedom of the garden. If there's no fence, the animals come in and destroy the garden. The fence is not meant to keep the vegetables in uh, or to damage the freedom of the vegetables. It preserves its freedom. And so it is with holiness. It's restrictive, all right, but not to the spiritual man. The spiritual man has the freedom to do anything compatible with his spirituality. Anything that he would want to do, which would be the will of God. But it only puts guards and curbs on the nature of sin, which would pollute and destroy the holiness that God has given to us through his spirit. And so for our own sake, holiness is the best deal you would ever make for yourself. I want you to think about this. First of all, in the physical realm, did you know that if you would adhere to the principles of holiness, you would have better health and longer life? Not smoking, not drinking, uh, taking good care of the physical body. 
Did you know if you live a holy life that you can get a better rate on your insurance premium? The world recognizes the value of holy living in the physical realm. Did you know that the person that is filled with bitterness and hate and jealousy, did you know that the, the uh, medical scientists will tell you that that causes physical damage to the body, ulcers, tension, heart attack can come directly from emotional stress and uh, anger bottled up? And so if you live the life of wholeness, learn to pray through the trials, learn to overcome the frustrations, learn to turn things over to God, learn not to let those bitter emotions rule and control your life, learn not to retaliate as the world does. It will actually improve your physical and mental and emotional health. Your family life, the billionaires of this world, do not find the peace that we have, the love that we have in Christian families. The person that lives by holiness principles, he will have a solid family that will endure in a, in a day in which almost half of all marriages end in divorce. I'm talking about even the benefits in this life. Someone that lives by holiness principles has a much richer and better and more meaningful life. Who can put a price on peace of mind, rest for the soul, the love of the family, the love of the saints in the church, fellowship? Who can place a value in that? that those are things that the people of this world uh, go into all kind of areas to try to find and they can't find. And we've got it by living the life of holiness. And then not to mention the benefits in the life to come. Eternal life. And so sometimes we think of wholeness as a very restrictive thing, but it's really not. Not to the spiritual man. It's the best deal you could ever make for yourself to live the life of wholeness. Both from the perspective of now and certainly from the perspective of eternity. Even financially. The world may laugh at us for paying 10% of our tithes, but I tell you what, I guarantee that by not drinking, smoking, going to movies, and doing these other things, you will save more than 10% of your income just by living a holy life. Plus, you have the blessings of God. So whatever way you look at it, the life of holiness is the best thing for us. And this is what I love about the, the Lord. To me, holiness is a privilege. You see, the human race was not created to live under sin. Sin is a foreign government. Sin is a detrimental force, a harmful force. That's why I believe that, that following the practice of sin hurts your physical body because you are not built for that. You know, you are not built to handle uh, anger and, and bottled up and bitterness and hatred. That's why it hurts you physically and mentally. You are not designed for that. Now, if you think of the manufacturer's specifications, you buy a piece of equipment and it says use it only in this fashion. If you use it in another fashion which it's not made for, it could break, it could injure the user, it could injure the bystander. So use it only in accordance with the manufacturer's specifications and instructions. The human race was designed for holy living. And when we give it over to sinful living, it just causes destruction. But we were bound by sin. We were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. We couldn't help ourselves. But that is the privilege of living for God. For the first time in our lives, we can live the way God intended the human race to live. We can live the life of wholeness. When somebody does wrong to us, in, in the, we didn't have the power before to handle it. But now we can handle our emotions. We can handle our reactions. For the first time in our lives, we are not a puppet on a string being manipulated by what the devil does, being manipulated by temptation, being manipulated by what other people do to us. 
But for the first time in our lives, we can stand up and say, I don't care what that person does. He cannot destroy my spirits. He cannot destroy my mental and physical and spiritual well-being. I don't care what the devil does. He cannot force me. For the first time in my life, I have the privilege of holiness, the power to live a holy life, the power to live as God designed for us to live to start with, to really know what life is all about. Amen. And that's just the beginning because then we don't even know what eternal life is like. We can only speculate and guess and, and have a small taste of it. Now, what is holiness? Let's give a definition. I would like to give you a twofold definition of holiness. And I want to show you this from the scripture. Now, before I give you this twofold definition, uh, maybe we can say, you know, just instinctively, when we say holiness, we, we think, first of all, as God is holy. The scripture that we've read says, Be holy, for I am holy. In reference to God, it's easy to define holiness. That means absolute purity, moral perfection, the absence of sin. That's holiness. But now when we come to us, it becomes a little more difficult because I'm not absolutely perfect. I'm not pure in the sense of totally opposite of sin. There are times when I fail. There are times in the past when I fail. There are flaws, maybe not sinful acts that I would commit, but there still would be flaws in my personality that's far short of perfection. So in relationship to man, we have to understand that holiness is not in the absolute sense. Holiness has to be in a relative sense. And here is the definition that I want to give for holiness. And that is separation from sin and the world. That's the first part. Separation is the key there. Separation from sin and the world. And then number two, dedication to God. If you want to think of it as two sides of the same coin, the negative and the positive, separation from and dedication to. Another way would be to say conforming to the character and the will of God. But when you conform to the character and will of God, that first means you've got to separate from anything that's opposed to God. And then you've got to positively take the step to submit yourself to the will of God. Separation from and dedication to. That's holiness. Now, in that sense, we can be holy in this life. You say, oh, but I have to be holy to see God. It's impossible. How can I be holy? Well, we're not yet holy as He is holy. But you can in this life be holy in the sense of separation from sin and the things of the world and dedication to the will of God. In that sense, you can be holy in this life. And if you look at the Old Testament examples, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How is a Sabbath day holy? How can a day be morally pure and sinless and perfect? Well, I'll tell you what that means. The Sabbath day was holy in the sense of separation from all the other days. It was set apart, set aside. All the other days you did regular activities. But on the Sabbath day, it was set aside apart from the mundane, worldly, earthly activities. And it was dedicated solely to rest and the worship of God. So you see that day was set apart and dedicated. Uh, the vessels in the tabernacle, they were holy. How can utensils be holy? In this sense, they were separated from all other vessels, all other earthly use. You weren't supposed to eat dinner with those vessels. They were separate. And they were dedicated solely to the use and the service of worship. In that sense, we can be holy in this life. Even as we're striving towards the absolute perfection embodied by God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in this life, in the process, we can still be holy in the sense of separation from and dedication to. Let me give you some scripture that will show you this is not just my definition, but this is really the Word of God. If you will look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I would like to read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. If you will understand that the chapter divisions were not original. They're not inspired. They're added by the translators. And in some cases, it's more convenient to get the whole message is to keep right on reading straight through the chapter. Uh, but 2 Corinthians chapter 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, notice right here. He's making a clear line of separation, isn't he? He's saying there has got to be a clear distinction between the holy and the unholy, between light and darkness. He says that separation is got to be Start with you. You are the temple of God. God actually lives in you. When you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. Therefore, you must be holy. God has given this promise that I will live in you. I will dwell in you. I will walk with you. You'll be my people. What should our response be? Verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And there is a clear call to separation. Now, do you realize most denominations in this world do not teach any doctrine of separation? You cannot really tell any distinction between them and the rest of the world. Now, before we get into what this separation means, at least at the outset we can say their philosophy or their theology has got to be wrong. Whatever holiness means, it's got to involve a separation. And whatever that separation means, it's got to be separation from something. And if you claim to be a Christian and you do all the things you used to do, go all the places you used to go, all the actions, the attitudes, the words, the, the dress, everything as before... You're missing a very key principle because the Bible says we are to be separate. Touch not the unclean thing. And he's not talking about things physically unclean. They're spiritually and morally unclean. And before we get into the specifics of what is unclean, we know at least there are some things that have got to be off clean, uh, unclean. They're off limits. There are some places. There are some activities. There are some things that must be off limits to Christians. So a person that says... Well, nobody tells me what to do. I don't have any rules. I don't have any guidelines. I just do it my own thing. Their philosophy of Christianity has got to be wrong. Because what, there are some things that must be unclean for Christians to be involved with. Now, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Since we received this great promise that God would be our God, that He would be our Father, that He would live in us, then what, what should we do? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, fear of God. And so we're talking about holiness. And the whole essence of holiness in this passage is separation. 
from the unclean thing. Holiness must demand a separation. Now he says filthiness of the flesh and spirit. What is that? I don't think he's talking about filthiness of the body. I think he's talking about sins that you commit with the flesh or in the flesh and sins that you commit in the spirit. In other words, there are some sins that you commit with the body. Physically observable acts that you engage the physical members of your body in. But then there are some sins that you commit in your spirit, in your heart, in your attitudes, in your thinking that may not be manifested in a deliberate or physical act that someone else could see. But both are equally sinful in the sight of God. I think it's talking about the outward man and the inward man. Holiness must be outward and inward. For example, the Bible teaches that murder is a sin. That is, I would classify that as a sin of the flesh, a sin of the body. But 1 John says, he who hates his brother is a murderer. And a murderer does not have eternal life. So if you have harbor hatred in your heart towards somebody, even though you may not commit a physical act, that becomes a sin in your spirit. And that is just as sinful as any other sin. And it will destroy your holiness just as much. The Bible teaches that adultery is sin. But Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, that if you look with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So that is a sin of the Spirit. Now, I do not believe that, er, uh, that temptation is sin. Because an evil thought comes to you or an evil opportunity comes to you or because you see something that would provoke an ungodly thought, that is not sin. I think it becomes sin when you entertain it, you dwell on it, you visualize it, you desire it, you fantasize on it, you take no steps to control it or to cut it off, but you indulge in it. And what I'm saying, even if you don't go out and actually commit a physical act, by allowing it to remain in your mind and condoning it and dwelling on it, it becomes sin already in your heart. Not temptation, not the thought that comes to you from the devil or the sinful nature or uh, something, experience that happens. That is not sin. Jesus was tempted, but yet he did not sin. But the line of sin comes when you allow it to take control of your mind and offer no resistance. You do not rebuke it. You do not go pray. You do not cut it off. But you let it have full sway and you continue to harbor it in your heart. Somebody hits me, naturally, the instinctive reaction is anger. That's not sin. But it's how I handle that. I cut it off, I get control of it. But if I let it turn into hatred, bitterness, grudge, harbor it in my soul, lash back at them physically, verbally, or you know, work against them, then it can become sinful to me. So we must be careful of sins of the flesh and the spirit. Now, there are some people that say, oh, well, it doesn't matter the way you dress. It doesn't matter what you look like as long as your heart is right, as long as you're sincere, as long as your motives are right. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, clean up the flesh and the spirit. If your heart is right, it ought to reflect on the outside. If you've got genuinely a modest spirit with no motive or desire of immodesty, then you ought to take care to project that to other people. It's not enough to say, well, God knows I have good intentions. The whole world needs to know your good intentions. And what can start out with good intentions, if you do not uh, match that up with good behavior and good uh, actions and good appearance, your external appearance and behavior can change your heart. There are a lot of people 
that actually start with good intentions, maybe even receive the Holy Ghost, but because they refuse to discipline the outer man, eventually you act out a part long enough, you become that in your spirit. And maybe you don't start with any insincere motives, but it eventually you develop those motives or you develop that attitude because you will not conform in the outward man. Now, we Pentecostals are strong in teaching the need to conform in the outward appearance. And that's where we point to the failure of these many denominations that think that they can be holy in their hearts and do whatever they want on the outside. It cannot be. It's got to affect the outward man. But at the same time, there must be a balance. It must affect the inward man also. And here's the danger that the Pentecostals can have. And that is, we could say, I dress right. I do everything the pastor says. I don't have a TV. I don't go to movies. I don't smoke. I don't drink. Therefore, I am holy. And that can be a very deadly self-deception. If you're harboring hatred, if you're full of gossip, if you're full of bitterness, if you're full of pride and rebellion, you can be just as unholy or more so than the man that's smoking the cigarette. But you deceive yourself and because you're outwardly conforming and nobody can lay a finger on you and point to something that you can see. Therefore, you say, I'm holy. To me, really, if you have the spirit of holiness with good teaching and good attitude and studying the scripture and following the spirit, you'll be led into the outward holiness. But, on the other hand, if you just have the outward show of holiness and it's not in your heart, you'll never reach holiness that way. I'd much rather deal with a new convert and have them wait six months or a year before they really understand everything and get it in their heart and live it out than to have someone just make a show of complying and not ever get it in their heart. You see what I'm trying to say? What I'm saying is it's got to be in the heart. We've got to take care to study our attitude, to analyze ourselves. Every so often we need to look at our motives. We need to get down and pray and say, Lord, are there things in my life that I don't see? We need to humble ourselves before God, pour ourselves out to God and make sure that not only is the exterior clean, the Pharisees had a, the holiest exterior you could imagine, but Jesus said, you're like a cup that's clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. You're like a tombstone that's whitewashed on the outside but full of dead men's bones on the inside. And he gave his strongest rebukes to the Pharisees, which are seemingly the holiest people around. And he said, except your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, you won't make it. And I believe we've got to deal with the holiness of the Spirit. It's got to be both. Now notice it says perfecting holiness. Holiness is a process of perfection. Now there are two kinds of perfection. I've really kind of alluded to this already. But there is absolute perfection as exemplified by our Lord. And then there is relative perfection. Now, none of us are absolutely perfect. I don't think anybody would claim absolute perfection. But that is the goal for which we strive. And one of these days, we'll arrive there. When the Lord takes away His church, our bodies will be transformed. Our sinful nature will be eliminated. We'll have a glorified body. The possibility of sin will be over for us. And we'll be as He is. We'll be perfect. Not God, but we'll be innocent, sinless, perfect humanity. Now, while we're striving for that goal we can be in the process of perfecting ourselves through the power of the Holy Ghost. And that's what I call relative perfection. Maturity. Growing at the right rate. I'll give you an example. My little baby boy, when he was born, believe it or not, didn't have any teeth, couldn't walk, couldn't talk, 
uh, couldn't reason as far as I could tell. And he hasn't made a whole lot of progress a little bit since. Now, if you would ask me or his mother, is he a perfect baby? Yes, he's a perfect baby. The day he was born, he was perfect. Now, ten years later, if he still doesn't have any teeth, still can't walk, still can't talk, is he perfect? No. What's the difference? He's the same as always. He's doing the same things he always did. But that's relative perfection. What I'm saying is you've got to continue to grow. In other words, relative perfection is judged by are you growing at the proper rate? Are you doing the right things for that stage? Are you maturing? And I believe that God looks at Christians that way. If somebody were to receive the Holy Ghost tonight, be baptized in Jesus' name tonight, I believe they would be ready for the rapture if the rapture took place tonight. But they may not understand a lot of things about holiness. They may not understand about the Bible. They may not know how to pray very well. They may not have uh, good uh, Bible study habits or prayer life or worship or regular church attendance. But ten years later, if they still don't know any more about holiness, they still haven't learned anything about modesty of dress, they still haven't learned how to pray, they still haven't learned to be faithful in church, they still don't pay their tithes, are they ready to meet God? That's a little different case, isn't it? You see what I'm saying? Now, that shows us that we're not to be the judge. You know, we shouldn't look at somebody and say, well, they're not conforming to so-and-so-and-so. They're going to hell. There's no need for us to say that. No need to even look at other groups or charismatics or whatever. I'm not saying they're going to make it. I'm just saying it doesn't, we don't have to worry about that. Let's work on ourselves. Only God is the judge. See, perfection, holiness is relative. And the new convert that prays through on Sunday night, I'm not saying you're going to hell because you haven't paid your tithes for 10 years or because you don't understand all these principles. I'm putting that person in the hands of God and I'm saying keep growing, keep learning, keep studying, keep being faithful to church, follow the leading of the pastor, and then you'll grow and you'll be holy. God will consider that person holy from the first time he receives the Holy Ghost all the way through. As 2 Peter 3.18 says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that tells us not to be judgmental. It also tells to be tolerant of others, because only God knows where they are in His scheme. Only God knows where they've come from. Only God knows where they're going. And we should not judge. The best thing you can do for somebody that you don't think is lining up in wholeness, and you're not the pastor, and you're not someone that God has put responsibility over them, the best thing you can do is to teach them holiness by a godly example in your own life. They'll learn more from that than for you corner them and buttonhole them. Now, if they ask you a question, a visitor or a new convert, whoever, they ask you a question, I think we ought to be able to give a Bible answer. I think we ought to be able to explain why. But it's not our duty to beat them in to heaven or try to. It's our duty to be tolerant and patient and loving and teach them by example. If we believe that holiness is really of God, then we ought to have confidence in the Holy Ghost to teach holiness, in the Word of God to teach holiness. That if we take a new convert and they're sincere, I've achieved holiness. We can't. You say, well, I'm, I live holier than that other person. That's not what you're being judged by. You're being judged by yourself and your standard against what God desires for you. And you can't excuse yourself by somebody else or a church across town, or a church across the state, or something, you say, well, they don't do all this. It's, it doesn't matter. God is going to look at you and the truth of His Word that He's revealed to you, His will in, for your life, your growth. What are you doing with what God has given?
The second definition, the second aspect of holiness, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Now, I'm spending a lot of time tonight on the foundation because I believe if we can get the principles in our hearts, then the applications will be easy. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I beseech you. That means I plead, I implore, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That is, in view of God's mercy to you. He saved you. He forgave you of your sins. He filled you with the Holy Ghost. Look all that God has done to you. Now, because of that, you ought to respond to God. How? That you present, you offer, you give, you yield your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And here is dedication to God or consecration. Because God has saved you, then we should consecrate our lives to do His will. And that's what holiness is all about. Giving your life to God. It says present your bodies a living sacrifice. We must have the sacrificial attitude. If, you, if some... Holiness teaching strikes you wrong and you say, I don't want to do that. That's too strict. That's too severe. That's too inconvenient. You know, our world makes such a big thing out of convenience. People say, well, well, ladies don't... That's, that's too inconvenient for ladies to have long hair. It's too inconvenient for them to wear dresses. You know, our, our world is so geared to instantaneous gratification. What's convenient? And, you know, I've had people say, well, women can't get around in dresses. And, and you think of all the centuries that the pioneer women, you know, out in the wilderness, and there they are in long dresses and long hair and all that. What I'm saying is we think so much of convenience that we make that like a little God. But whenever we start, the Word of God starts hitting us a little strong and we see this inconvenient, this hurts, I don't like it. We ought to check ourselves and say, wait a minute. I'm supposed to have an attitude of sacrifice. Sometimes that means it's not so inconvenient. Sometimes it's not what I would like. Sometimes it's not my will, but if it's the Word of God, then I've got to be willing to sacrifice my carnal will and carnal desires. A little bit of my money has got to be sacrificed, a little bit of my time, a little bit of effort. And if the life of holiness costs a little bit of time and effort, give that as a sacrifice to God. Just like that animal in the Old Testament was tied to that altar, his life was taken. Whatever will that animal had was gone. Whatever independent life and existence that animal had was gone now God is not asking for physical blood from us but he's asking for a living sacrifice to live our lives like that animal died that is to give up our will to give up our desire to give up our independent existence and do what God says so we've got to have a sacrificial attitude but don't get a martyr's complex because you know what? It's only a sacrifice to the flesh. From the world's point of view, the Christian life is pretty restrictive, isn't it? From your carnal self, it's pretty restrictive. Your, your carnal self doesn't like it. Your carnal self would like to watch some of these things on the movies and TV. And you say no, and it hurts the carnal self. But it's only a sacrifice to the world's point of view. It's only a sacrifice from the flesh's point of view. But from the spiritual point of view, as I've already talked about, it's no sacrifice at all to live for God. It's not a sacrifice to live for God. I get more than I ever give. I get the good end of the bargain. From the spiritual point of view, from the ro logical, rational, reasonable point of view, living for God is the smartest thing I could ever do, which is your reasonable service, your logical, expected, spiritual service service living for God is the best deal that I ever made holiness is the best thing I ever made 
I heard someone say one time, he was an accomplished uh, musician. He said, oh, I gave up a career in Hollywood to serve God. And I thought, you don't give up. You know, what a boast, you know. You did give up. You know what you gave up? You gave up a life of misery, a life of immorality, uh, no, probably a life of drunkenness, drugs, uh, ruined marriages. Yes, you gave up a lot to live for God. You got more than you ever gave up. Hallelujah. We don't come to God trading anything, really. We just trade ashes for riches. We trade rags for, for the cloak of righteousness. It's our reasonable service. It's the best thing we could ever do for ourselves to live the life of holiness. So to that old flesh, when it pops up, you've got to say sacrifice. Not my will, the will of God. But then you've got to back off and don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't feel like it's a burden. It is the best thing that ever happened to you. The ability to live holy. Amen. Now, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, other translations, Philip's translation says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Other translations say, don't be conformed to the fashions of this world. What he is saying, don't just follow what the world does just because the world does it. Be changed in your thinking. Don't live by a worldly value system. Live by a heavenly value system. Let me, let me point this out to you. The, what does the world think is important? I'll tell you what the world thinks is important. Money. Power, status symbols, physical appearance, physical sex appeal, youth. That's what our society thinks is important. To show you that, just look at uh, a, a magazine and just look at the advertisements. And they try to sell you a car by the picture of a young woman. There's nothing to do with the car. But they're trying to attract you by what is supposed to be a desirable thing, a desirable value system in the world. And what he's saying is don't adopt the world's value system. Don't do things the way the world does it, but be transformed in your thinking, be changed and renewed in your thinking to do the will of God. And we've got to really watch this in our lives. There are many people, I'm not just talking about dress, but we're talking about what about those people that uh, made me in the church, but they spent all their time and their energy trying to get ahead in life trying to accumulate possessions, trying to get richer, trying to get power, trying to manipulate. And their family life is sacrificed, their church life is sacrificed, their prayer life is sacrificed. See, they're conforming to the world. See what I mean? Not just in outward dress, but I'm talking about in our values and in our lifestyle. Don't let the world around you tell you what to do. You take hold of your own life and you do what God says to do. It was so funny. When I was in high school, it's kind of towards the end of the, the real big hippie era. In fact, I was looking through my high school yearbook uh, a while back, and I was the only man or only male in my graduating class that had hair uh, that didn't touch his shoulders. I mean, all of those guys had hair down their backs and all this, and I was the only one. And what I think was so funny, they'd come to school in old grungy jeans that had, they'd boast of how long it had been since they'd been washed. They would buy new jeans and uh, cut, fray the bottoms of them or cut holes in them and put patches in them, you know, just all to look as horrible as they could. What I thought was so funny, they thought they were being rebels, nonconformists. I'm doing it my way, doing my own thing. I'm showing them. I'm rebelling against my parents. I'm rebelling against the establishment. I'm rebelling against the school. You go to school, and there they all look just alike, all wearing 
dirty blue jeans, all long hair, all this, all that. And they were conforming to each other like you wouldn't believe. And it was somebody like me that stuck out. What I'm saying is that Satan's deception to say, be your own man, do your own thing. But there's no such thing as doing your own thing. You're either doing God's thing or the devil's thing. You see, if you're not doing the will of God, by definition, that's sin. By definition, that's living for the devil. If you're not living for the devil, if you're not living in sin, then that automatically means you're, you're doing the will of God. I mean, there is no middle ground. There isn't no DMZ where you can say, I'm just going to do my thing. I'm not going to do what the devil wants. I'm not going to do what God wants. I'm just doing my thing. No, you have a choice of masters. But you still got to do one or the other. And so if you're not going to live for God, you are conforming to the devil. He's got you like a puppet. He's manipulating you. You're doing exactly what he wants you to do. You're doing exactly what the world wants you to do. And the Christian young people in our school systems, they say, well, you know, there's the pressure for conformity. They're not being individualists. They're con they would be conforming to everybody else. And what God is saying, be spiritually free. Really, in the spiritual sense, to be your own man and your own woman. The only way you have freedom, the only way you have control of your own destiny is not when you live for the devil, but when you live for God. Because when you live for God, you live for Him because you want to, because you like it, because that's the way you want to live. When you live for the devil, that's because you are compelled to, because you're in a trap, because you're deceived, because you're blinded. But it, He says, rise above it. Don't just live like the world. Don't follow all the worldly fads and fashions just because they dress this way. That doesn't mean you have to dress that way. Evaluate it by heavenly decision. And if it's a godly thing, then okay. Uh, you know, we, we're not saying do the opposite of everything what people do. We're saying don't use their value system. Use God's value system. And just because the world pushes it doesn't mean we have to. We stand back and we say, wait a minute. I'm going to do it if it's right. Amen. I'm not going to do it if it's wrong. Now, there are three things in this world. First John, I would like to look at this for a moment. First John chapter 2, verse 15 through 16. First John 2, 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's talking about the world system. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. These three things, I believe these are three sources of all temptation and sin. Could probably be categorized in one of these three areas. Think about it for a minute. When Eve and Adam sinned, all three of these were involved. They saw that the fruit was good to look upon, lust of the eyes. It was good to eat, lust of the flesh. Desired to make one wise, pride of life. If they ate it, they thought they'd be like God. Notice that Satan tried to tempt Jesus in these very three areas. Jesus was tempted at all points like as we. I don't think that means that he had every situation that every individual has. But in every category, every possible way, he had that way. The lust of the flesh, Satan tried to arouse that by saying, Look, you're hungry. Uh, use your uh, divine power to turn these stones into bread. Use miraculous power for carnal purposes to satisfy the flesh. Lust of the flesh. He said, look at all the kings of the world, they can all be yours. He tried to appeal to lust of the eyes. But of course, Jesus did not have lust of the eyes, and he refused to get involved with it. And then finally, pride of life. He said, jump off and rely on that promise that the angels will catch you. Uh, show that you're a superman. 
you know, show that you won't be hurt, that you will miraculously be uh, prevented from harm. You know, do a, a egotistical display of your supernatural power. No useful purpose in jumping off uh, and having the angels catch him at the last minute. There's no value in that. Deliberately tempting God, deliberately trying to prove what you have. That would be a manifestation of pride, of fleshly ego. And so these are three areas that uh, tempt us all. And if you think about it, I would say that our holiness standards, practical living, really are designed to thwart temptation in these areas. You think about it. We preach against television. That's the lust of the eyes. And it leads to the lust of the flesh. We preach godliness of dress. No jewelry, no makeup, things like that. Why? What's wrong with those things? They appeal to the lust of the eyes. They arouse the lust of the flesh. And they develop in the wear pride. In the physical appearance. Carnal value system rather than a heavenly value. In other words, all those things say what is important about you is your physical appearance. Whereas God says what is important about you is your spiritual life, your good works, your devotion, your humility. And so what I'm saying is these holiness principles that we're going to be getting into really are designed to control these three areas of temptation. If we understand that, that can give us a, a much better uh, reason and uh, why we live the way we live. Now, in just a few minutes here before we wrap things up, I would like to move to a couple of areas of practical application. One of the areas of application of holiness, I think the first area that, I, that we should mention, is the fruit of the Spirit. If you would like to define holiness in a positive manner, it's really bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. I'd like to read this for a minute, Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now, I could spend an hour on each one of these, but of course I'm not. I am going to give you the nutshell sermon and let you preach it yourself. I'm going to give you the outline and let you preach your own sermon, let you do your own Bible study. If you're really interested, what you could do is take each one of these words and get in a concordance and look them up and track down what they mean in Scripture. But let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. If we really had temperance, which that means self-control, if we really had goodness, if we really had meekness, that attitude, that spirit, then would we, would we be worried about immodest dress? No. That spirit of self-control and moderation, of meekness, humility, that would automatically teach us modesty of dress. In other words, instead of just attacking the negatives, if we could learn to develop this fruit in our life and concentrate on it, pray about this, make this a goal, then that would automatically take care of a lot of areas of wholeness in our lives. And here's something I would like to challenge you. Study these, th this nine aspect of spiritual fruit. Study it, the definition of these words, other scriptures that relate to these. And identify your areas of weakness, because we all have, I think we would all agree, that we don't match up to these perfectly. Love. Do I really love? Do I show love towards my own family, towards other people, to people in the church? Do I really show love towards the neighbors, towards the lost, to the people that don't really treat me right? Have I really shown love lately? Have I had peace of mind or have I let the devil rob me of that? How, how about long-suffering? Which I like that. It means patience, but I like the old-fashioned word, long-suffering. 
Am I really long suffering with people? Am I willing to suffer long with the follies of others? You know, long suffering doesn't mean you are patient when, when you're right. I mean, you're patient when you're wrong. Uh, it means when you're right. When the other person's wrong, you're still long suffering. Or self control. Do I really have self control? Or meekness. You know, some people think that meekness means being uh, spineless or weak. But no, meekness uh, is really an inner strength, calm, quiet control. Now, what I'm saying is identify areas where we're weak and then make that a daily prayer request. Make that a daily for that month. Say, I am going to consciously take steps to be more long-suffering. You know, I usually get mad and fly off the handle, but I'm going to make a conscious effort. When somebody does me wrong, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to really try on this. Not just in my human strength, but I've been backing that up by prayer. Lord, when these situations come, as they always do, help me to react. And so I'm going to count to ten before I do anything. And you think about that long-suffering. You think about that self-control. And then as you improve in one area, start bringing in other areas. That is practical holiness. Now let me give you a second area, a practical area of holiness. And I will call that attitudes. This will be the last thing that we'll touch on tonight. Attitudes. I believe that attitudes are the most important aspect of holiness. Because if you have the right attitude, you can be led into all the other areas. If you have the wrong attitude, you'll probably deceive yourself into thinking you're holy. And never be holy. Never be saved. I'd rather deal with somebody that has a problem smoking cigarettes than somebody that has a bad attitude. Because it's easy. they got the good attitude and they're smoking. It's easy to help them overcome that. But if somebody's got the wrong attitude, it's hard to get through their head that they've got to change the attitude. It's dangerous. It's deadly. The attitude... It's so important. Let's read a verse, a couple of verses of Scripture in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, 31 through 32. By the way, the Scripture text that we read tonight, which said, follow peace and holiness. Did you know the very next verse says, be, be, be aware, lest there be a root of bitterness in you, and that it would defile you and defile many others? It seems that, Attitudes were so important in holiness that he says, be holy. And the next verse he says, and the number one thing you need to watch for is an attitude problem. The number one thing that will destroy your holiness is first of all, an attitude, a root of bitterness, something that lies in your heart that causes bitterness to come to follow. Maybe somebody does something wrong to you. Maybe you're slighted. Maybe you're not treated right. And you let that root grow in your heart and produce fruit of bitterness. Holiness involves the attitude. Now let's look at Ephesians 4, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now that touches on some powerful attitudes. Bitterness, that's a harsh, disagreeable spirit. We cannot allow bitterness towards other people. In this church, you should be able to honestly shake hands and love every person in here. You may not be uh, best friends in the sense of having the same likes, you know. You may not like to go shopping with that person necessarily. But you should be able to clearly and honestly with a good conscience look in the eye and say that you love them. Be willing to help them, to care for them, to pray for them. And if there is any division that comes up, the best way to do it is to go pray for them. 
Instead of talking to somebody else about it, go to God and talk to him. It's very hard to have a burden for a person and sincerely pray that God would help them to overcome whatever problem you perceive in their life and be burdened and travail and fast today for them and tell nobody but God and then hate them at the same time. We've got to get rid of bitterness. Sometimes people do things us we don't like. And I know it's easy to say don't retaliate, but it's hard to do it, right? But that's when we need to go pray and say, Lord, I'm a human. I'm struggling with resentment. I resent what they did to me. I resent what they said. I resent what somebody else told me behind their back. Lord, I need help. Forgive me of this. Help me to overcome it. And don't let it become sin in your life, but attack it. Get rid of it. Pray through until you get a clear enough view of Calvary that this other stuff doesn't matter anymore. And it can be done. It's not easy. It's contrary to human nature. People say, that's just not my personality. I've just got an angry personality. That doesn't excuse you. That condemns you. If you say, I can't help it's my personality, you're confessing that you're not letting the personality of Jesus Christ flow through you. But you're letting your old sinful personality flow through you. That doesn't excuse you. You are condemning yourself by your own words. You say, I'm just a hot-tempered person. That's no excuse. That is condemning yourself because you're admitting that you haven't got control, that you haven't turned it over to God. And so we've got to learn to these difficult things to pray through over that until our attitude can be cleansed and pure sight of God. You know yourself, don't you, that when you have prayed, when you've come out of a good service, you can love everybody. Nothing bothers you. Isn't that right? When you've got the Holy Ghost, like all these things, you are aware of them, but they don't really make a difference. We can have that kind of attitude. We really can. Put away ang- wrath. That's violent rage. Put away anger. Anger itself is not a sin, but it's very close to sin. The reaction of anger is not sinful. Especially when it's in a righteous indignation, I guess you could say, that Jesus got angry and kicked out the money changers in the temple. We ought to be angry if you see somebody beating up on somebody, you, you would get angry. But whether it becomes sin or not depends on how you re- use that anger. You should use that anger as a constructive, motivating force to propel you to do something about the situation, to improve. But if you let that anger cause you to be violent, uh, to, to, to grow as a grudge and bitterness in your heart, then it becomes sin. That's why verse 26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. What he's saying, if you get angry, you better be careful not to sin. Control it. Correct it. Channel it right there. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. That means don't hold it. Get it straightened out. Get it cleared out. You know, I can't help it if I get angry, but I can help it if I remain angry. If I, if I let that turn into bitterness, then it's sin. The good principle is before the sun goes down, Get it straightened out with that brother. If that brother is unreasonable, you can get it straightened out in your own spirit to where it doesn't matter. That's a good principle for husband and wife, you know it? Never go to bed angry. No matter what happens during the day, no matter what kind of difference of opinion you have, before the sun goes down or before you close your day out and go to sleep, you say, wait a minute. We disagree, we disagree violently, but wait. We love each other. We're not going to let this stand in the way. We're going to come to an agreement. We're come to a compromise. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And get cleared then. That's the way to handle it. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. That's a noisy, insistent, demanding. It's like when uh, my little son is just now learning to throw temper tantrums. And we're just now learning to stop him by spanking him. But clamor to me is a noisy, insistent uproar. To me, a clamorous spirit is someone that is always demanding, always noisy, always causing trouble, causing uproar. 
We've got to avoid that. Clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice. Malice is desire to harm someone or to see them harmed. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And let's close with that forgiveness. That is an ideal, isn't it? Oh, forgiveness. That is actually forgiving people as Christ forgave us. I mean, that is hard to do. Because Christ did not just forgive us when we came and said, I'm sorry. Christ, in the sense, He died for us while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were opposed to Him. He offered forgiveness. Somebody says, well, I'll forgive them if they'll come crawl back and say they're sorry. No, that's not what Christ is doing. The offer of forgiveness, you know, as far as we're concerned, we have got to be willing to forgive and forget before they acknowledge the error of their ways. You say, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Is that how Jesus Christ forgave you? He says, I'll forgive you, but I'm going to keep reminding you of you every day. No, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is forgetting. Not in the sense that you can't remember, but in the sense you don't hold it against them. You don't bring it up to them. If you come over to my house and you knock over a vase on my coffee table and you break it, and you say, oh, I'm so sorry. How could I do that? I'll pay you for it. And I say, don't worry about it. It's okay. Do you expect me to send you a bill the next day? If I forgive you of that, now, you have an obligation perhaps to offer, but if I forgive you, you know what forgiveness means? I bear the cost of your mistake. When Jesus died at Calvary, He died the death we deserve to die. Forgiveness means you bear the brunt of somebody else's wrong. And to have a forgiving spirit, sometimes somebody do, people do things unjustly, and you say, I want my rights. But as a Christian, you don't demand your rights. You turn the other cheek. You give up your rights to Christ. And so forgiveness means I'm willing to suffer wrong and still forgive. Forgiveness doesn't mean I'll wait till they come crawling back and make it right, then I'll forgive them. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is saying I'm willing to bear it for the sake of peace and unity and love. I am even willing to bear an unjust situation. That's forgiveness. That's not human, but that's Christ-like. And that's what we're to strive towards. Lord, help us to forgive one another just like you forgave us. Have you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? You know what that Lord's Prayer says? Forgive us our debts as much as we forgive our debtors. You really mean that? You know what you told God? Lord, if I don't forgive other people, don't forgive me. Are you really willing to do that? We've got to learn to forgive. Amen. Let's stand tonight. I hope that I've touched on something of benefit to you. We've laid the principles tonight, the, the foundation and definition of holiness, and tried to cover a few aspects. As the next lesson, we'll be getting to more practical things, even. We'll be getting into the tongue, the eye, the various aspects of holiness in our everyday life. But I want you to understand from this lesson that most of all, holiness is a spirit. Most of all, holiness is living a Christ-like life. Holiness is having the proper attitudes that the Lord Jesus Christ would want us to have. It's not a matter of rules and regulations. You can't live holy by rules. There's no way. There's no way you're going to be forgiving just by following the rule book. There's no way you're going to be, for, uh, you're going to be loving. There's no way you're going to have self-control. There's no way you are going to really be holy just by listing all the rules in the book and following them. Holiness comes by new life in Christ, by prayer, submission to the Spirit. It's tough. It's hard. It's a sacrifice. But it's worth it all. Amen. 
I want us to thank the Lord right now. I'm turning this over to Brother Dugas. But I want us to genuinely thank the Lord for the life of holiness that we can enjoy. Praise the Lord. Let's thank Him right now, shall we? Let's worship Him. Hallelujah. Let's take a little while just to raise our hands and express our love to God. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of holiness, for the spirit of holiness, for the attitude of holiness. And, Lord, help us to have it. Oh, Lord, help us to perfect holiness in our lives, to have a godly attitude, a forgiving spirit, a separation from the value system of this world. Help us to be dedicated totally without reservation to you. Hallelujah. Praise your name, Jesus. I want to leave.